Well, friends, I'll encourage you this morning to have God's Word open in front of you. Turn to the passage, please, that Philip read for us from Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and these verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. And we're going to think about the whole of that section together. I love watching sports documentaries on the TV. There's quite a a few good ones on Amazon Prime at the minute entitled All or Nothing. You know, they'll follow a sports team around for a season. There are some of them. They follow American football teams around. There's one where they follow Manchester City around. There's one where they follow Spurs around. Uh, And there's one where they follow the the all-black rugby team around for a season. And one of the things that it brings home to you is how good the managers are at that elite level, how good they are at reading their players, how good they are at knowing what each player needs in order to get the best out of them. For some players, it might be that they need the hairdryer treatment, they need shouted at in order to get them out of the comfort zone, in order to get them thinking, well, I'm going to show the manager how good I really am. For other players, it might be that they need an arm around the shoulder or whatever the equivalent is in a COVID-secure world that we seem to have to live in now. That, That makes them feel safe, that makes them feel comfortable, that makes them feel wanted, and so they produce better performances on the pitch. And of course, that isn't true of just sport. It's true of any management. Part of management is knowing how to get the best out of the people under your management. But as we come to this passage in Luke chapter 1 this morning, I think we see something similar from God. God knows what his people need. God knows how to encourage his people. God knows how to uh, enable his people to press on, to make progress in the Christian life. You see, last week we saw Zechariah doubting the promise of God. Last week we saw Zechariah thinking, well, how can this be? I'm an old man. And because of that doubt, because of the doubt that the message of the message that the angel Gabriel brought to him, Zechariah was struck dumb. Now, of course, Zechariah should have known better. Zechariah was a priest. Zechariah was one who represented the people before God. He should have known better. And today we see Mary doubting, doubting not so much what the angel says to her, but doubting how it's going to come to pass. She says to the angel, look, how can this be? How can I have a son? I'm a virgin. I'm not yet married. The angel doesn't scold her, doesn't chastise her the way that he did with Zechariah. But instead he offers her evidence. He says to her, look, Go and see your relative Elizabeth. People said she was barren. People used to to whisper behind their their, their hands about Elizabeth. But go and see, she's pregnant. Nothing's impossible with God. Mary doesn't doubt the message, but she doubts how it's going to come to pass. And the Lord offers her the proof, the evidence that she needs in order to, to, to make progress in the Christian life. We want to think about three things, see three things from this passage in Luke 1. Firstly, we'll think about this angelic visitor. Secondly, we'll think about a promised king. And then thirdly, we'll think about the proof offered. An angelic visitor, a promised king, and the proof offered. So firstly then, this angelic visitor, an angelic visitor. And we see that in verses 26 through 29. We finished last week by noticing how Elizabeth had kept herself hidden for five months. We saw that great statement that she made at the end of the section we looked at. Verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, what? To take away my reproach among the people. And we notice then as we come to verse 26 that this same angel, the the angel Gabriel, is on the move again. This time he's sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He's sent from God to a city of Galilee. Notice please, just in passing, just very quickly, that that's always the direction of revelation. It comes from God to man. 
it comes from God to man. God has revealed himself in the scriptures. God has revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself in the world that we see around us. That's always the direction of travel for revelation from God to man. Man is not at liberty to make up revelation for himself. It comes from God. And he comes from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now get out of your head here any pictures of a kind of bustling metropolis. Get any pictures here out of your head of the idea of Belfast or Lisbon. This is a, a much more insignificant place. This is a much more backwater place, probably somewhere like Carrick. And after being sent to that relatively insignificant place, he is sent to a relatively insignificant woman. Just an ordinary young girl. A girl who's betrothed to be married. A girl who's promised to be married to this man, Joseph. And she was called Mary. Now that Gabriel would be sent from God to Nazareth is amazing in itself. But when he gets to Nazareth, he isn't sent to the mayor. He isn't sent to the elected leaders. He isn't sent to the most important person in Nazareth. Rather, he's sent to this young girl going about her ordinary, everyday life. And of course, this is what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the things that are foolish in order to shame the things that are wise. God chose the things that are not in order to shame the things that are. God doesn't always work according to our plans and purposes. God doesn't always work according to our social status and our social understanding. God doesn't always work according to our plans of who's important and who isn't. You see, it's easy to fawn over people today. We can fawn over their intellect, we can fawn over their wealth, we can fawn over their standing in society. And yet God here reminds us that it's often the most insignificant things. It's often the seemingly most insignificant people whom he chooses to work through, whom he chooses to achieve great things through. Not the rich and the powerful, not the influential, but this young girl. And note the detail that Luke records for us. Luke, remember, of course, is a, a trained historian. Luke is very careful about the detail that he records for us. And she, he tells us, verse 27, that he came to this city of Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, as a Jewish person reading this, your ears would have pricked up at that. As a Jewish person reading this, your ears would have been beginning to tingle at that. All sorts of connections would have been made in your brain. Here we have the messenger of God coming to someone who's from the house of David. God has been silent for 400 years. There's been no, not a word from heaven. And now God is coming. God's messenger is coming to someone who is of the house of David. You would have been thinking, well, what's going to happen next? Well, why? What's the message? I remember during the, the early summer, kind of April, May time, there was a, a daily government briefing on the state of the nation around coronavirus. And sometimes you would get a little, a little sense of a really big announcement that was to come. It might be, you know, trailed by Laura Koonsberg at the BBC or, or whoever at ITV. And it got you thinking. It got you excited in some senses. You were thinking, well, what's coming? What's this really big announcement that's about to come? What is it that the government are about to announce? You had to keep watching to find out the reality. But it got you excited. It got you thinking. 
And so too for the Jewish person here, as Gabriel comes to someone who is of the house of David, it gets them thinking, it gets them excited, it gets them wondering, well, what is coming next? What is this announcement about to be? Could it be the Messiah we've been waiting for? He comes and speaks to her, he assures her, verse 28, of the Lord's favour. Greetings, Gabriel says, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But as always, this appearance of an angel brings fear, it brings uncertainty. This appearance of the messenger of God brings this kind of uncertainty. We see that verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that it might be. What does it mean to be favoured by the Lord? Why is there an angel standing in my front room? You see, this is why Zechariah and Mary, I think, are so different. You see, Zechariah should have known better. Zechariah was, after all, a priest. Zechariah, after all, represented the people before God. Zechariah, after all, offered the sacrifices for sin. He should have known better. But don't forget, at this point in history, heaven has been silent for 400 years. There's been no word from the Lord. There's been no new revelation of God himself. And so for Mary, this ordinary Jewish girl, I think it's perfectly understandable that she thinks, well, what's going on here? She's nothing to reference it against. She's no way of processing what's happening to her. And so naturally, she's trying to figure out what's going on. What does it mean to be favoured by the Lord? We see the angelic visitor. But secondly then, we see the promised king. The promised king. And we see that in verses 30 through 33. Verses 30 through 33. A promised king. Over and against her fear. Over and against her suspicion. Over and against her worry. The angel says to her, verse 30, Look Mary, don't be afraid. Why? Because you found favour with God. She was wondering what sort of greeting this might be. She was wondering what it meant to be favoured by the Lord. And, and Gabriel says, look, don't worry. Don't be afraid. You have found favour with God. It's good news that I'm bringing you. It's excellent news that I'm bringing you. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, this is quite a promise the angels delivering, isn't it? It's quite a lot for this young girl to take in. Here's this young betrothed woman, this young virgin, being told that she's about to have a son. And more than that, being told that the son that she's about to have will actually be the son of the Most High God. Yet it isn't even finished there because the Lord will give to him, the Lord will grant to him the throne of his father David. There's so much Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled here. So many Old Testament promises that are coming true even in this one scene. We want to stop just for a moment here and think about all of the promises that are coming true. All of the promises that are being fulfilled here. Of course, first of all, most, what would you say, most obviously, we see the promise, the fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 promises that the virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel. His name will be God with us. Here we have the angel Gabriel announcing the fulfilment of that promise. The son that you bear, Mary, will be the son of the Most High God. He will be God with us. Yet there's even more here, and there's something I think that's even more, I don't want to say significant, but there's something that's even more important for us to grasp here, and we can easily miss it. Because notice how Gabriel describes this son that will be born. 
Look at the very end of verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. 2 Samuel 7 is one of our key texts as we understand the kingdom of Israel. It's one of our key texts as we understand our covenant theology. And every Jew would have known it. Every Jew would have remembered it. Every Jew would have understood the implications that it had for their society. 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a house for God. David wants to build a temple for God to dwell in. But over and against that, God says, well, look, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And more than that, more than that, you will never have a, uh, never fail to have a man who will sit on the throne of Israel. That was the great promise. That was the great covenant that the Lord bound himself to in Second Samuel chapter 7. This promise of everlasting kingship. This promise that there will be an eternal king on the throne of Israel. And of course, as the Old Testament progresses, we see the failure of David's sons, don't we? We see their slide into apostasy. We see the division of the kingdom into two parts. We see eventually, of course, the exile of the people and their kings. But the Lord has promised to Samuel 7. The Lord has assured David that he will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. He has promised him that there will be this everlasting king. So who is it? Who is it going to be? And Gabriel gives us the answer here. It will be Jesus. It will be the son of Mary who will be this everlasting king. He will be the one who will sit on the throne of Israel. He will be the one who will be the one that all Israel had been waiting for. He will be the one who will succeed where all the earthly kings failed. He is coming to restore the throne of David. That's why all the pious Jews' ears would have been tingling. That's why they all would have been wondering when this angel is sent from God to a person who is of the throne of the line of David. Sorry. They know the promises surrounding David. They know the expectation that's there for this eternal king. And Christ is, of course, the fulfillment of that promise. The one who they've been waiting for. The king, the ruler, the promised Messiah. And, of course, this morning, friends, Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting on. Not just the house of Israel, but the whole world. The one whom the whole world needs to know that this is no ordinary baby. This is no everyday run-of-the-mill baby. This baby would be the one sin-bearing sacrifice to be the saviour of mankind. And that's what the angel announces to Mary. That's who your baby will be. But I wonder this morning, friends, do you know Jesus like that? Do you know him for who he is, for who he truly is, the sin-bearing saviour of mankind? You see, it's easy to get sentimental at Christmas, isn't it? It's easy to see that lovely picture of the manger. It's easy to get sentimental around that lovely picture of Mary and Joseph peering over the baby Jesus. It's easy to get lost in the, the, the kind of cuteness of that scene. Yet, friends, that baby in the manger would grow to be the man on the cross. In the shadow of the manger stands the reality of the cross of Christ. That's who Jesus is. That's who this baby is, the one who come to take away the sin of the world. But do you know him for yourself? Has he taken away your sin this morning? And notice the promise of verse 33. 
The angel promises Mary and says, look, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. This kingdom that Jesus is coming to usher in is an everlasting kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. I was trying to think of the the best way to illustrate this. You know, imagine being Daniel in the kingdom of Babylon. You looked around at the opulence. You looked around at the power. You looked around at the, the sheer vastness of the empire. And it must have been hard to imagine a time whenever the Babylonian Empire wouldn't exist. And yet here we are today and the Babylonian Empire is long gone. Think about the British Empire in the 1800s. It was so vast, so powerful, it covered so much of the world. It would be hard if you were living in the 1800s to imagine a world without the British Empire. And yet, by and large, the British Empire today is gone, certainly in the form that it existed in the 1800s anyway. Why? Because our earthly kingdoms rise and fall. Because our earthly kingdoms wax and wane. But the kingdom that Jesus Christ is coming to usher in, the kingdom that Jesus Christ is coming to establish, is an eternal kingdom. It will be a kingdom that is without end. His is the kingdom that will endure throughout eternity. There's so much talk of uncertainty these days. Brexit is bringing uncertainty. Covid brings uncertainty. It's easy to feel lost in the midst of that uncertainty. It's easy to feel tossed and harried and worried in the midst of all of that uncertainty. But if you want certainty this morning, where do you go? You go to the kingdom of Christ. If you want certainty in your citizenship this morning, where do you go? You go to the kingdom of Christ. Because his is the kingdom that will last forever. His is the kingdom that is unshakable. All our earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. But the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will stand forever. There is certainty. There is surety. There and there alone is hope this morning. We've seen the promised king. We've seen the angelic visitor. And then thirdly and finally we think about the proof offered. The proof offered. And we see that in verses 34 through 38. Mary probably fairly enough says to the angel Gabriel. Well look how can this be? I, I, I'm not married. I'm a virgin. I'm betrothed to this man Joseph. So how can this happen? How can I conceive and bear a son? And the angel announces, verse 35, Look, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice the Trinitarian shape of the Incarnation. Notice the Trinitarian shape of redemption. It's what we see time and time and time again. The Father sends the angel Gabriel to Mary. The angel Gabriel announces that the, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. And that what is conceived in her will be holy. What is conceived in her will be the son of the most high God. There's the Trinitarian shape of redemption. The Trinitarian shape of the incarnation. Father, Son and Holy Spirit at work in redemption and in incarnation. Luke here refutes a, a Greek idea. That if a child was to be born of the gods it would be a child that was born naturally. It would be a child that was born by intercourse between the gods and woman. And instead, what Luke says is, this child who's born to you will be holy. This, of course, doesn't mean that Mary was blameless. It doesn't mean that she was blameless herself. But rather that what was conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit would be 
holy, blameless. It's a reminder to us, friends, that Jesus Christ isn't just an idealized version of us. He isn't just the best version of us. He isn't us on a really good day. He is holy. He is blameless. He is the Son of God. He is utterly different from us. But he shares our nature. He is both God and man in one person forever. If that isn't enough, the angel offers her the proof and says, look, go and see your relative Elizabeth, her who was barren, her who was mocked, her who people used to talk about behind her back. Go and see her. And she's six months pregnant. That's the proof. God can do anything. If he's done it for her, he can certainly do it for you. And Mary says, verse 38, look, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it, let it be so. The promised king has come. The proof has been offered, friends. Let us submit ourselves to him. Let us let him rule as king in our lives. The baby of the manger is the saviour of the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you, Father, for the cross of Calvary that stood at the end of Christ's earthly life. We pray, Father, that you would help us to submit ourselves to him, that you would help us to enthrone him as the, the king in our lives. We thank you that his kingdom indeed will last forever, that his kingdom has no end. And we pray, Father, that we would indeed be citizens of that kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.